Welcome to Geeks and Jocks Podcast. Welcome back to Geeks and Jocks. This is Ryan Sullivan back with a, another new episode here. Here, as we reach the middle point of September, recording in the early hours of the 15th of September, 2020. Officially, or at least here in New York. About six months since the pandemics created a crazy part of our lives now. And for this episode, talking about talking about Windows Millennium Edition 20 years later, because it came out right around this time in 2000. Talk about the NFL a little bit, Xbox Series S and Xbox Series X. Warner Brothers Animation, and one or two other things in this episode of Geeks and Jocks. So, I talked about Windows 95 uh, a while ago, not not too long ago, and uh, I talked about just the last episode briefly about forgetting about Windows Millennium Edition, so talk about it now. So... This was the second computer that I remember having and having it around Christmas 2000. It was like a it was a Christmas gift basically for everybody. Uh, so <clears throat> Windows Millennium Edition ME uh, came out in the summer 2000 and then in retail stores that September and it was it was an operating system that was similar to Windows 95 and Windows 98. It ran some of the same stuff, but not all the way. One of the big issues many people have with it was not having MS-DOS, Microsoft Disk Operating System, which had been a staple for Microsoft's computers since the start of the 80s. And when Microsoft started Windows back in 1985, and at that point in 2000, MS-DOS was pretty much dead. Everybody moved on to just playing games on Windows, playing games on CD-ROMs, though you still had people that were using floppy disks and a couple other things. And... Windows Millennium Edition is looked at as a huge failure and an embarrassment for Microsoft. And I can't blame people for saying that because for my family, it was a bad experience. I mean, I've, I mean, I got good memories of using the operating system, but a lot of the negative stuff outweighs the uh, positive aspects of of the operating system. Unfortunately... It was plagued with being locked up constantly, blue screen of death, red screen of death. It just seemed like it was always having a freaking issue. And it was always memory issues as well. I can remember it in the top of my head. Memory allocation about to begin. Memory allocation complete. Even when playing computer games, it was having issues. Defragmenting the damn system as well it just it kept doing it constantly for a long time and later on 
we lost one computer monitor because it kept the, the way it, it's hard to explain it's hard to explain it to to people what happened but just basically the screen you would see the image on the monitor and it would just drop down and you, you get just a black screen and that's what happened the first monitor and we went and got a second monitor and by the time we got into getting a uh, Windows XP computer around 2005, a home computer by the way, of XP and 05 uh, we were, I think that other, that second monitor was about ready to bite the dust because it was starting to have issues as well and I think it was ready to, it was, I think it was doing the same issues that the first monitor had and I think that's the thing most people have issues with. It's just, just it was just the constant lockups and people's monitors being burned out and not really any good security, mind you. And just, I mean, we, for my family, we used a compact computer to do uh, Windows Millennium, Millennium Edition. And it had a DVD-ROM drive, which we didn't fully use DVD until 2003 when we uh, got a DVD player. And by that time, I don't think we were really utilizing uh, DVDs on there. It wouldn't be until probably XP used DVDs probably a couple times, and that was it. Uh, the The early days of trying to get people on the DVD bandwagon. So it was still pretty young at that time in 2000. And it was the last time I used like floppy floppy disks. And them three, three and a half inch floppies. I think that started to die out like a couple years after using it. But I mean, it was still usable for that time. And of course, CD-ROM drive. I don't, I don't, have too many memories regarding the the operating system as far as I mean I used the internet a little bit more but it was still during the days where we still had a dial up as hard as that is to imagine and the internet was just unbelievably slow really slow and it, it it would not function the same way as 95 at times, if I remember. I, I remember 95 having issues, being a bit slow, and having its share of computer issues, but nothing to the level of Millennium Edition. And I'm just I'm glad I didn't have to go through high school with that with that computer. I'm glad I grew up with uh, as a teenager on Windows XP. That to me was a fantastic system, and if I'm still doing this podcast next year, I'll definitely talk about XP because that was a lot of experience. You know, playing games on there, using the internet a lot more. The early days of YouTube, I would love to talk about the early days of YouTube with that computer and the laptop that we that my family had. Yeah, so many memories. As far as gaming goes on the uh, Millennium Edition, uh, 
Uh, it was just a continuation of playing games that I played on Windows 95. And not really many uh, new games either. Uh, I mean, I played shareware stuff still. I mean, you, you play what you own. And playing the shareware stuff of, you know, Doom, Wolfenstein, Skyroads, Ford, Ford Simulator, and playing floppy disk stuff. And that's something I forgot to mention a little bit. Um, if I, unless I did mention it, I was playing on floppy disks, uh, some shareware episodes of uh, Hocus Pocus, a game that was made by Apogee about a wizard wanting to join a council and going through various tests to show that he is worthy of joining the council. That was a fun game, you know, playing through some of those levels as a kid. Uh, Duke Nukem. Yeah, hard to believe. Uh, Duke Nukem was a it, the first game which turns thirty next year. It was a side-scrolling platformer, and so was the second game until uh, Duke Nukem 3D came out as a first-person shooter. It was just it was a basic platformer the first game, and I don't think that was about it as far as like floppy disks go. And shareware, uh, but I definitely rem- there were some games I did play on Windows ninety five, like like Doom two and Sonic and Knuckles Collection. I played a lot more of those two games on uh, on Millennium Edition and figuring out the cheats to uh, Doom two and you know explore the levels with the uh, no clip mode. And actually, I think I remember playing through some levels legitimately on Millennium Edition. Sorry, I just can't pronounce Millennium that quick of a pace. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I remember playing Doom a little bit more legitimately at that point. Uh, Sonic & Knuckles, the game moved much faster. It has something to do with the refresh rate. I definitely remember playing it a bit more on Millennium Edition, and you know, being a being a young kid and playing uh, games from this company called Humongous Entertainment, playing mostly Putt Putt, uh, the the first Putt Putt games that came out back in the early to mid nineties. Uh, as far as other stuff goes, I mean played a lot of Comanche Gold. To me, that was like a fantastic game. You know, I, I'm a big fan of, of that game. It's, you, you, you fly a Comanche helicopter and you do various objectives. It's kind of like a simulation in a way where you, you use like a, a cannon, rockets, Hellfire missiles, Stinger missiles, and you're you could sustain damage and parts of your chopper when you get damaged will affect the performance of the Comanche I remember playing it a bit on uh, ME and but definitely playing a lot more on uh, XP as well uh, Need for Speed High Stakes, uh, that was a fun game, like I believe that was like the first time I ever played a Need for Speed game and it was it was fun to play. It was it had 
stuff from Need for Speed 3 Hot Pursuit. And it had its own original stuff. And all together... All together... It, it, it was one of the best games I played as far as anything from like the late 90s, early 2000s. It was just crazy, you know? And it's just fun playing the most wanted part of uh, of that game. Just to see how long you can last with the cops on your tail until they arrest you. <laughs> uh, man, that was, that was some fun stuff. Uh, Delta Force 2, uh, definitely... Definitely remember playing it a little bit on there, I believe, and playing uh, it on XP. That was actually, you know, it's one of the games that my dad got into. And around like 2002, 2003, he was kind of tired of the console experience, you know, having having a PlayStation. And he, I think he just grew out of it. And that's, he gravitated a little bit more towards uh, the computers at that point in like 02, 03. I mean, that's how he played Madden. He played Madden 03 and 04 on on Windows ME, and it was an experience for him. because He liked playing like the training camp stuff. He played seasonal stuff. I mean, he was really into Madden until we got a PS2 in uh, 03, and we got Madden 05 the next year. Like, he really got into playing, like, online and playing the season modes and all that. Just, just trying to think of other games I might have played around that time period. Um, this was, like, really late when we had Millennium Edition. This was, it had to have been, like, 03. If not, it was 02. Playing Half-Life for the first time. Playing... The, the original Half-Life, Half-Life, uh, Opposing Force, Blue Shift, and that, I, I played a little bit of it on there, I definitely got my share of playing it, and not understanding how to play it at first, I think now these days I'm more comfortable with playing uh, those games, it, they're definitely a lot of fun, uh, especially if you play the original, especially Opposing Force, I love the idea of being a uh, the opposite side of of the war between Black Mesa personnel and the military that to me is, you get to see it from the perspective of an army guy and doing the same stuff like in Half-Life but from a different perspective and I that, that to me is it's, I think it just slightly edges out the original Half-Life I think it just slightly edges it edges it out. As hard as that is to believe. <laughs> and Half-Life's a great game, by the way. I think one of the last games I ever really got for it... I mean, it was kind of like a thing for me and my younger brother. Um, it was... It was like a Sega pack. It had like eight, eight games in that package pretty good value and it's like Sega Smash Pack 1 and 2 uh, Sonic CD Sonic 3 and Knuckles although I had Sonic Sonic and Knuckles collection which had the Sonic 3 Sonic and Knuckles and both 
the combo of Sonic 3 and Knuckles. Uh, Sonic R, Sega Bass Fishing, Crazy Taxi, I think, and uh, Virtual Fighter. I might have been Virtual Fighter 2, but I'm but I'm not completely sure. I forget, and I feel like I played the Smash Pack stuff and and maybe Sonic CD on Millennium Edition because I don't remember playing much of the other stuff until playing it on my family's XP computer that we got a year later in 04. I'm trying to remember as good as I can, but it's it's, it's hard to remember. So yeah, I mean, it was, there was some good stuff, but just the constant freezing and lockups of of Millennium Edition. I mean, like I said, it's not a surprise. I've heard some. I heard that depending on the operating system, well, on the computer to be exact, I hear. It can sometimes run well. Uh, I don't know if it like I don't know if it has something to do with being installed on the operating system, or if it's something you can upgrade to or not, or if your computer can sustain Millennium Edition. I don't know, but you know, 20 years since Millennium Edition. I mean, I think I'm just soured on it as a whole. I don't think I would want to go to it, and I think if I wanted to go to an old operating system, I probably would either go 95 or 98, as far as mid to late 90s era PC goes, or just stick with XP, I think, because it came out pretty quickly after uh, Windows 2000 came out, and I wouldn't be surprised if a majority of games that ran on 2000 uh, ran on uh, XP. Oh, I forgot another game. Uh, NASCAR Heat. That was like one of the few NASCAR games I played that wasn't from EA at the time. From EA Sports. Definitely played quite a bit of it. And especially the challenges that they offered. Which were uh, nice considering no other games were really trying that as far as NASCAR goes. So that's... Kind of the memories of um, Windows Millennium Edition to me. How about we start jumping into uh, the next part, and that is Warner Brothers Animation. Because of what they were able to do 30 years ago, and it, it culminated in them doing all these sort of cartoons and all that. So... When you look at animation, it was definitely struggling in the 70s, and just people people were getting tired of Disney, people were getting tired of Looney Tunes from Warner Brothers. I mean, it was just not a good time to be involved in cartoons. In the 80s, it definitely was a little different. People were getting more into these shows that were more geared to, say, sell toys, action figures, just merchandising when you think of merchandising you think of like G.I. Joe, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a few other projects you got these one-offs that last uh, 65 episodes and that's it and 
that's that's that was a model that worked on most cartoons back in the 80s and 90s you know it was enough for people to see and they probably would watch the cartoons constantly that 65 episodes is more than enough to provide provide enough entertainment for kids but then like the late 80s you started seeing stuff from Disney where they were taking chances on syndicated television and there was there was syndicated stuff from other from other channels as well and you had stuff that was being Saturday morning blocks on like ABC CBS NBC Disney took chances on their own when they did stuff like DuckTales in 1987 and uh, uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers in 89 and Warner Brothers I mean they they probably had some stuff here and there but nothing that really stood out so what I'll get to is they started to click in 1990 when they when they started airing Tiny Toon Adventures and with the involvement of Steven Spielberg being a producer of the show. Now you got to jump all the way back to 1986 to see Spielberg's involvement in cartoons beginning with the release of Don Bluth's Amer- An American Tale, the story of a of a of a mouse and his family moving to New York, immigrating to New York. And it was, and it did went relatively well, and it was, and it, did, I think it did well critically, if I'm not mistaken. And Spielberg's uh, company, Amblin, and himself would um, continue that a couple years later with The Land Before Time, and Spielberg would put his name and collaborate with Robert Zemeckis to do Who Framed Roger Rabbit that summer pretty good collaboration considering that they worked on Back to the Future a few years prior well regarded well received I mean there's a reason why it's a classic and it had its share of Warner Brothers characters and Disney characters and I mean 1940s cartoons it's a love letter to that decade as far as like wacky characters and just these outrageous moments and unfortunately it's stuff you can't ever get away with today probably and what I mean by that you can't do a PG movie full of swearing and just all these crazy violent moments but whatever the case it kind of got Spielberg to keep doing cartoons and he put his name into the cookie jar of just putting his name onto cartoons and this quality that was starting to show up in the late 80s and early 90s and I would say without Tiny Toon Adventures which he got to be working for a long time with WB you don't see Warner Brothers do all these cartoons you don't see them do comic book adaptations and a couple years later they would do um, Batman the animated series they did like a Superman cartoon they did a couple other cartoons they did some successors 
like Animaniacs, for example, and just several others. So what is, with all that aside, what is Tiny Toon Adventures? It's kind of like Looney Tunes in a way. You know, you got characters that are eerily similar to to their predecessors. You know, you, you, know, you got, say, for example, Bugs Bunny. Here's Buster Bunny, for example. Except you're dealing with teenagers, not not these adult anamorphic type uh, adults type cartoon characters that can saw off Florida, for example, or scream at the top of their lungs while firing pistols. And they some episodes focus on just the wacky nature of of what Looney Tunes was back then. They they had episodes about how to do a cartoon. The, the characters make their own cartoons. Hell, they were able to do parodies. And I'm sure there's been parodies done prior to Tiny Toons. But the fact that they were able to do an episode that parodied the movie Citizen Kane, which I might add is from the late 30s and early 40s. To do an episode like that, I mean, they they must have loved just film in general and just any, like, stuff that was current at the time, you know. And not only that, but getting away with some R-rated type humor. And when I, Actually, let me rephrase that. Doing stuff that I don't think would click in a kid's head, like one episode they had a small bit where they made fun of the movie Carrie R-rated movie I don't think any kids would understand that until years later it's that kind of phenomenon that you see with uh, kids cartoons just the amount of hidden adult stuff that you see in those episodes you might not notice it when you're 8 years old but when you're when you're a teenager an adult and you want to revisit these cartoons uh Let's just say the adults that worked on these cartoons, let's just say they wanted to have some nice little nuggets for you so that you can mention it on, say, a Reddit forum 30 years later. (laughs) But it had a pretty good run from 1990, actually around this time, mid-September 1990, through the end of uh, 1992. Uh, Big hit. Overall, it was on syndication for a long for the first couple of seasons, and then the last season Fox had it, and Fox actually had their share of uh, cartoons. Then they were just starting around that same time Tiny Toons began, and to be able to get that and have, I think they had a pretty good lineup around ninety two, ninety three. Even though Tiny Toon Adventures ended in ninety two, it was used for reruns for for a few years and to combine that with say Animaniacs Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and Batman the Animated Series even though I don't care for that Batman cartoon that's a good that's a good two hours of entertainment that can get you some really really good ratings yeah, so as far as um, you know Tiny Toon stuff plenty of merchandise plenty of kids related stuff plenty of video games the fact that there were still video games being made in the early 2000s. I think it shows the kind of like the power that 
that these shows had as far as like captivating an audience. Same thing with Animaniacs a little bit too, even though I hate Animaniacs as a show. The, but I digress. But yeah, it, it just Warner Brothers just tried their best to get the same kind of attention as Disney, and they tried doing that throughout the 90s, and I think as far as TV shows went, they were doing relatively well. The Movie-wise, they struggled. A, lot, a number of their movies, either regardless of whether they were panned or well-regarded, um, most of them were pretty much box office failures. And that's why, I mean, really, Warner Brothers has not committed to doing say a theatrical release of an animated movie because of the struggles that they had throughout the 90s and I would say maybe even the early 2000s I think the biggest success that they had was the hybrid combo of Space Jam and let's be honest it's kind kind of a forgettable film I mean it's funny in some spots but overall kind of mediocre and kind of overrated today by people who who I think it's just a nostalgia thing I mean it's it was something different and hell they tried to get bring Looney Tunes back in 03 and that was a failure you know what's disappointing this year actually the fact that Scoob the animated Scooby Doo movie that was supposed to come out in theaters that was that was going to be the first time if the pandemic didn't happen, it would have been the first time Warner Brothers gave Scooby-Doo the animated theatrical treatment in animated form for the first time ever. And that's unfortunate. Because I think, because I think as far as like brand power goes, I mean, we're talking about Tiny Toons. Scooby-Doo's had a huge recognizability as a franchise for over 50 years now. And the fact that it didn't have any theatrical releases in animated form, that's very telling. I mean, although those direct-to-video stuff definitely were hits. Uh, just You'd think at some point they would have done a theatrical release and unfortunate that it still hasn't happened. I'd actually be, be curious to see the numbers for that movie. But yeah, those are my thoughts on Warner Brothers animation as a as a whole in 30 years of, since Tiny Toon Adventures. You know, it's... Yeah, it's... It was just an interesting decade to see animation as a whole. I mean, Disney was doing going to start doing really well starting with uh, following their disaster of the rescuers down under doing well with like Beauty and the Beast a year later and then the momentum with Aladdin and then the Lion King a little bit of decline here and there in the mid to late 90s but still uh, Warner Brothers like I said with the cartoons on TV you see cable networks starting to rise when you see Nickelodeon bring all their cartoons you got Turner trying their hand at cartoons on TBS, Cartoon Network, USA with freaking Duckman, uh, what else? Beavis and Butthead on MTV, South Park on Comedy Central, Dilbert on UPN, The Critic on ABC. I mean, 
I mean, that it's just so many people trying so hard. And some of them are adult cartoons, I understand. If some people may not know about something like a Duckman or Dilbert. But hey, people were trying to replicate The Simpsons. Uh, what I mean by that is trying to see if they can get an audience on primetime TV like The Simpsons. <laughs> so, moving on, um, the Xbox brand as a whole. Uh, my first experience with the Xbox brand overall was in 2009 with the Xbox 360. Uh, never really played an original Xbox in my life. I think my younger brother had one. Not my younger brother, older brother, excuse me, uh, had one. And he had a couple games, and it was just, I think it was like some sports games. Definitely would have wanted to see how, the, how they would have played, though. Because I often hear how good the graphics would be on uh, Xbox compared to uh, PS2. But I digress. Um, so 2010, after some experiences with the 360 in 2009, get we, my brother, younger brother and I got one. And definitely got a lot of enjoyment out of it. Especially, especially after 2012... I remember like six months straight playing uh, GTA 4, just trying to go through the missions and doing all the side stuff if I could. Uh, what else? Uh, I mean, I did play it every once in a while, but I didn't really play it fully until 2012. Even though I beat some stuff like the Simpsons game and tried other games like uh, Halo, ODST, Forza Motorsport, it was it was not a bad experience. So, I remember the reveal for the Xbox One in 2013, and if I, it was they considered it the worst reveal since the Sega Saturn, and that and that says a lot. Anyway, you know, I got an Xbox One S almost two years ago. Come late November, it'll be two years since I bought bought it, and I played a here and there, and, you know, it's not a bad system, I think it's just, all the momentum that Xbox had with the 360, well, Microsoft, to be exact, what they had with the 360, and they kind of faltered during the later years of the 360, even though it was getting some exclusives very late in its life that you didn't get on PS3, the fact that it didn't get the Rise of the Tomb Raider, I think it was, Rise of the Tomb Raider was on 360, but you couldn't get it on uh, PS3. You couldn't get the Snoopy game that was on 360. You couldn't get it on PS3. Like there was, like I know that's a smaller game compared to uh, many other titles, but it's just 360. There must have been like availability and just being able to work on the uh, engine or work on the 360 architecture that because that was like one of the biggest things and it still is a big positive if you play a 360 if there's a game on the 360 that you could play on uh, on PS3 
more than likely the 360 is going to run a lot better and run smoother. Although some cases PS3 can hang with the 360 and sometimes it would be a disaster as well. I didn't though what's funny is I didn't have as many playing through uh, Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas didn't have many lock lock up issues or freezing issues. The issue on PS3 was more so like frame rate issues. Like it would definitely get a bit slow going through uh, certain parts of the game. I think 360 had that issue too, but not as severe. But that being said, so Xbox is trying to do whatever they can to get their audience to uh, to get to get to win back customers and try and get the hardcore gamers and the casual people to buy into the Xbox series, insert whatever name they'll have for it. So they got the Series X, which will probably come out in November, and I believe the price is $500, which seems like that was going to be the price in the first place. But they come out with, uh, with info about the Xbox Series S, which was leaked not too long ago, and they mentioned it, and they announced that it would be a $300 system. Now, let me tell you this. $300 is actually not bad. And I would say, now these days, it's a reasonable price. I would say 200 would have been the case, say, 10, 15 years ago, but... Now these days, I mean, 300 with like one terabyte of memory of storage and all that, that's pretty good. And even though I didn't pay 300 for for my PlayStation 4 or Xbox One, paid 200 for the One and 250 for PS4, still, I mean, pretty good deal. Now, at first glance, it shouldn't be a bad incentive. I mean, why not? $300. This is an easy way for parents to get their kids the new next-generation system, or for people who might be on a budget. At first glance, though. Let me reiterate, at first glance. But, and this is a huge but, there are not a lot of good things you can say beyond just the price. And it starts with being an all-digital system. Microsoft tried last year an all-digital Xbox One. I believe you could get some free games for it. And you could also get... uh, What was it? What was it? I think it was like one terabyte of memory at the expense of no disk drive. Now, I don't think it did anywhere well. I don't I didn't really hear much about the all digital Xbox 1. As hard as that is to imagine. Um then they recently cut it out of stores I think back in the spring. And same thing with the Xbox 1X. They just they stopped production of those back in the spring so 
they're definitely trying to get people aware of Xbox Series brand. So that's why you'll see probably more. There'll probably be more of a focus on digital only systems. That's which I think would be a very very bad idea, quite frankly. Um, it, it, that being a no disc drive for Xbox Series S, I mean, there's gonna. I think it'll throw people off a little bit. How much of a severe blow, I don't know. It, it's hard to tell. And considering the pandemic, who knows what kind of sales will be in place and how well... I, I would say the same thing for PS5. How well will both these systems do within those first couple months, especially around the holiday season? And how much the pandemic will affect their sales? And with it being all digital, it probably feels a bit aggravating. And I wouldn't blame the people for feeling pissed off. But the disc, the the no disc drive is not is the least of the worries because the big issue is that not just graphical downgrades, even though it will still function the same as Xbox Series X, the fact that it's only getting 500 gigabytes of storage. And I kid you not. Just over 500 gigabytes of storage. and I'm sure that's the total and not the amount that you could carry. Because the number is probably going to be lower than 500 gigabytes there's no way it's 500 exactly. And that's the case with any of these systems over the last 15 years. It, the the amount of storage, it's not exactly the number that they show you. It might be a little lower. You know, like the, uh, like, like the PS4. Um, it's not exactly a terabyte, but you do get over 800 gigabytes of storage. Now, if this were uh, 2005, or at least 2012, I would say, okay, that's not bad. It's not the greatest idea in the world, but hey, maybe it could work. But it fails. It fails on a high level. Just by, just judging by what I've read on on various websites. Games now these days, I mean, games are much bigger today than where we were seven years ago. We're not talking 50 gigabyte games anymore. We're not talking about you can fit six, seven games six to ten games on on your hard drive. We're talking games that you might be able to only have two or three games and that's it. Games have gotten much bigger and I know I know some people are not always going to buy these uh, not going to buy the AAA games because there will be people that probably would like to play games that aren't that big. 
you know, you got the indie scene for gaming and you these a number of games they don't require ten gigabytes of uh, storage. Or even five. Though though it depends on the game in question, of course. But if you're looking to have some of these bigger titles, and I would think there are people that do want some of the killer apps for for these game systems. You don't want 500 gigs. You want a terabyte or more. There's a reason why you see hard drives, you know, backup drives for PS4 and Xbox One, ones that can give you 2 terabytes storage, 4 terabytes of storage. Hell, there's one that is like $170 for like 8 terabytes. You better be having this huge Xbox One collection if, if you're going to have an 8-terabyte uh, external drive. I can't see... I mean, it's probably nice. Don't get me wrong. But 8 terabytes? That collection better be huge. Or if you're looking to buy everything digitally and that you can keep all the stuff on your uh, hard drive... But here's the thing. Hard drives don't last forever. Eventually that stuff will get wiped out. And uh, it'll be unfortunate if you can't get access to all your uh, to all your games if it's wiped out. Especially if stores started shutting down. Which, I mean, one, one of these days it will happen for, say, the Wii U the 3DS, the PS Vita, and eventually PS3 and 360. It's going to happen one of these days. I'm not saying it's uh, it's not going to happen I'm not, immediately. I, it, it'll probably still be going for like another year or two, at least in my opinion. But who knows? Who knows exactly what's going to uh, happen. So, Xbox Series S, I think it's a good idea from a price point, but I could see a lot of people having buyer's remorse. I could see parents feeling suckered because they... I I can't see kids being dumb. I can see them trying to manipulate their parents and maybe try and get, say, their credit cards and and try and uh, buy whatever they can off of the storefronts to buy whatever games that they can get and because they can't get the disc version of of those games. I think there has to be better thought put into this because 500 gigs is worth it's about, it's like Nintendo releasing the Wii U with an 8 gigabyte uh storage and 32 gigabyte storage in 2012 very inexcusable. I mean, I'd like to see Xbox do well, but just mistakes like those are why they lose. And it's unfortunate because there's times where 360, you know, is an amazing system. And it's probably the only system where they had a really good, really good life and had great first-party games along with the third-party support. Like, it was on par with what a Sony system was getting. Yeah, unfortunate. 
there aren't there aren't much else to talk about with with movies. I'm starting to see more commercials for uh, for specific movies like this. I think it's like Infidel or something. I forget what's called, but starting to see promos for some movies that are they're trying to get people back in the movie theaters and you know I see what happens there because some places still don't have their movie theaters some of them are still closed up I think people will get desperate at some point unless really video on demand and streaming takes over completely I just Another one, another thing I'll mention is that I would like to see if people can figure out like what movies uh, have appeared on on how many cable channels because recently E Channel um, did an airing of Shrek, and I tried to figure out how many times, well, on how many channels have aired the damn movie. I mean, it's a great movie, no doubt. But, I'm trying to think of how many channels have aired, I think, like NBC, uh, what else, uh, Freeform, MTV, Paramount Network, TNT, uh, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, TBS, uh, E! Channel, now, uh, probably Disney Channel at some point, Cartoon Network, I mean, like, almost a dozen channels, probably more, too. Like, it's, like, you think it would, you think it would lose value, but, I mean, it is a popular movie. You'd think it would lose some of its value being on all these channels over the years, but, guess not. I guess not. I mean, if Another thing uh, that I just realized with uh, television, I think I think it's going to be tough for some of these uh, shows to get back into production. And I saw these uh, commercials on uh, ABC regarding some new programs that they're going to have. One of them is called uh, Supermarket Sweep, and another one was called Emergency Call. These look like low-budget type shows that... I could see companies trying to control how much money they'll they'll spend this season in an effort to to not go overboard with spending money on production because of the pandemic and trying to protect people and all that. It might be just a it might just be a year where studios will just phone it in and try their best I mean what else can I say <laughs> so I um, guess I'll finish up with uh, sports tell you what with the NFL a lot of people getting hurt the fact that Marlon Mack is lost for the season for the Indianapolis Colts because of torn Achilles Blake Jarwin, the tight end for the Cowboys, torn ACL. Plenty of players with uh, leg issues. Like in the, like watching the Steeler Giant game, they lost. A, Steelers lost a couple linemen on offense. 
and one that looked pretty bad. And if it's not a, a couple months of missed time, more than likely it's going to be a lost season for for their one lineman. And I think it highlights an issue. I think people want to see no preseason games. I think you got to have preseason games. I, it doesn't need to be four games, but have at least two. I think with preparedness, maybe people will feel more ready to to be on the field and have that real action before the actual season begins. And a lot of teams, I don't care who won or who lost, a lot of teams look sloppy. They just... Like that, like the New Orleans uh, Tampa game, no one really looked good at all. Like not even, not even Drew Brees. I mean, Tom Brady had a decent game, but not the kind of Tom Brady performance that you see. And and the run game was just atrocious on in Tamp for the Tampa side, and just New Orleans. I mean, Kamara really didn't do much. Neither did. Uh, Neither did uh, Latavius Murray. I'm surprised that the Cardinals actually beat the 49ers, but I think I think Arizona could have a good year. I mean, Kyler Murray's due to get that team into the playoffs, and with that defense as well, it's just. I mean, they should be a favorite to try and win the West Division in the NFC. You know, a lot of people tend to uh, crap on the Detroit Lions. I can see why people want to crap on them. They find ways to lose. You hold on to a decent lead, and you let the Chicago Bears come back and win. I don't know what kind of Bears team we're going to see this year. And right now, I think people should be optimistic. Trubisky had a good fourth quarter, but as far as can he do stuff... In the first three quarters. That way Bears fans don't have to panic. About what happens in the fourth quarter. It's a scary thought in my opinion. Speaking of scary thought. How about the run game for New England? The fact that Cam Newton ran for two scores. Is it the same Cam Newton of old? I don't know. Just one game though. In fact that they were facing the Miami Dolphins. Byron Fitzpatrick showing reasons why he never amounted to shit at times throughout his career. It's just... I just find it amazing just that the the amount of inconsistency that a guy like Fitzpatrick has. But that's not the focus here. What I'm focusing on is the Pats' run game. And the fact that they were able to run with Newton. And Sonny Michel didn't have a great game rushing, but he did get a touchdown out of it. I think Belichick is taking a play out of uh, what he saw with the Giants and other teams when he was with other with other teams during his time before 2000. Because when you look at the Giants in 85, they, for Belichick's first year as defensive coordinator for the team, Joe Morris ran for 21 touchdowns. No giant has come even close to that. The closest was Brandon Jacobs in 2008 with 15. 
the running backs in Cleveland, he's he made good use of Eric Metcalf during the final final couple years that McCaff was with the Cleveland Browns. Leroy Horde is the first year Belichick coached the team. Nine touchdown catches in 91 for Horde. He, there's something about about these running backs that he likes because he's, cause he's had great ones like Antoine Smith and Kevin Falk. Falk more so for the receiving game. The last really good running back he probably had Maybe for like a rushing standpoint, was probably probably Corey Dillon. Hard to tell with like Legarrette Blunt for those couple years in the five six years ago, but I'd say Corey Dillon was really the last productive one that was able to be consistent and wasn't consistently bogged down by injuries or just not used heavily in the run game. Now, another surprise, the Washington football team beating the Philadelphia Eagles. And this is a group that really has nobody. One bright spot being the front seven. And they had their most sacks in a game in in six years. Being down 17-0 and scoring 27 unanswered points. Ron Rivera knows how to... Knows how to coach a team. I'm not sure if it will be good enough to get them into the playoffs for 2020. But he knows how to fix a team. He fixed Carolina. They got in the playoffs in 2013. Two, you know, third season after uh, a mediocre 2011. Small improvement in 2012. Unbelievable, you know. <laughs> Uh, what else? Pretty much uh, the near-perfect game for Russell Wilson. 31-35 and four scores thrown. I mean, just, he, this is why he's in the running for MVP because he just, the last five, six years, he's shown that he's more than just a mobile quarterback and he can manage the game. He's He's a passer. And probably the best quarterback out of any of the quarterbacks drafted in the 2010s. If there was like a a look at who was the best, I would say Wilson would be at the top for that for that decade's group of players. Atlanta had a, had their share of good stuff. Todd Gurley got a touchdown, and Calvin Ridley. I mean, he's going to be one of the big bright spots for Matt Ryan. You know, it's a way to compliment, you know, Julio Jones and, you know, Ridley and all these guys. Matt Ryan had the best game passing this week out of anybody for this week. And I believe the final for the uh, Tennessee-Denver game ended. And I'll tell you what, uh, 16-14 as of right now... It's about 1.30 in the morning at the time of this recording. Must have been like a big run. I was just trying to see. Oh, boy. There must have been a... Wow. There must have been like a last-second last second field goal. 
31 rushes by Derrick Henry. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's like that's like Eddie George type type shit. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that gets the team going with like like a bulldozing back. I mean, that's this is this is the 2020 version of Eddie George. I'm trying to think of other other games that Kansas City Houston, I mean, Kansas City's for real and the way they played, I mean, with that new running back that they have, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, that guy put up a lot more effort as a rookie, his first ever game in the NFL, than what the uh, running backs in Kansas City did last year. Up until probably late in the season, and I mean, nothing, not disregarding how good Damian Williams was in the Super Bowl this past season, but they didn't have a game to the level of what Alaire, Edwards Alaire had today, uh, Thursday night. Now, as far as politics stuff goes, eh, I think the NFL is a lot smarter, and, and I think they handle their stuff a lot better than what the NBA has done. Uh, sure, you get your race and racism stuff, and that's fine. It's just uh, at least it's not all plastered on the field like the NBA does. You got players that put stuff on the back of their helmets. It is a little annoying, but hey, that's that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. I think they've handled this stuff a lot better compared to the uh, to the NBA. And speaking of handling stuff in the NBA, how about the Milwaukee Bucks? Losing to the Miami Heat. Now they face. Now the Heat face the Boston Celtics in the conference finals. And I really haven't watched an NBA game since the pandemic uh, happened. And really haven't watched anything of the NBA since they resumed play at the end of July. But this was supposed to be the best team in basketball, Milwaukee. And just it must be just a struggle because I I'm struggling to think of players beyond their two main stars. You gotta have a good bench, I guess, and maybe a good committed team. I don't know. I'm just amazed with the uh, Miami Heat. I mean, this is a this is a team that's only 32 years old formed in 1988 and they have been one of the big mainstays of the Eastern Conference NBA for a good 20-25 years especially when they when they got guys like Tim Hardaway, Alonzo Mourning I mean they were like not to say that they didn't have players but you get those kind of guys going and you create some intense games especially with their rivalry with the Knicks in the late 90s I mean, who could imagine Larry Johnson fighting Morning and Jeff Van Gundy holding on, I believe, to Morning's leg in the 98 uh, playoffs. Now, Miami got the first blood of beating the Knicks in 97. There were some fights in, in that series, and several Knicks didn't play in key games, resulting in Miami winning the series in 97. Now, 98, the opposite. Miami lost some of their guys, and the Knicks took advantage of that, only to lose to the Chicago Bulls. 
But still, some bad blood in that time. I mean, this was when the NBA was the NBA. You didn't have stuff like the three-pointer overtaking the league and just the these superstar bullshit that you saw 10 years ago. I mean, you could play, you could be rough, you could play defense. Like, there was a point where you not everything needed to be 120 to 115. But back to Milwaukee. Sorry for that tangent there. <laughs> but see what happens next year. I mean, I th- believe their main star gets... I, I think his contract's up, I think. I don't know. He wants to stay in Milwaukee, but can they afford him? I don't know. Hard telling, not knowing. So I think there's not much else really to be said uh, for the, to end this episode. Uh, pretty much baseball's still going. I'm going to keep my eye on the San Diego Padres. They're not too far behind the LA Dodgers. That might be the that might be the dark horse to uh, to maybe get into the World Series. There's and there's there was a headline I read that said could the Yankees and Astros do well as lower seed teams and they could go deep potentially I mean it all depends on how they handle the Oakland A's the Tampa Bay Rays and maybe one or two other teams I mean being a lower lower card lower seeded playoff team may not necessarily be a bad thing I don't know but you definitely want to have something like a home field advantage. But like any sport, there's not really any home field advantage. There just isn't. I mean, it, I mean, you want them, you want the fans. But that being said, I mean, it's anyone's, it's anyone's game. And I'll tell you what's anyone's game. Looking at NASCAR, I talked about earlier this year, Kevin Harvick. Now, he won a good while ago the first uh, the first playoff playoff race that NASCAR had about a week ago. And he tied his uh, total his career high in uh, wins with eight wins. And that's something he did two years ago in 2018, winning uh, eight races. Altogether, over uh, 20 over 20 wins, which is pretty, pretty good, and he's nearing 60 wins for his career. And I think what I look at as the most impressive is that this is his 20th year in racing. Usually when it comes to these kind of drivers that have been racing for a long time, they lose a little bit of that edge that makes them really good. They might still race, and maybe they might get themselves that that rare win or so. But for Harvick, I'm I'm impressed. I mean, he's still capable of driving them very well, and you know, it, he seems like he's poised to to get to get his second Cup Series championship. There's definitely a number of guys that 
are in the running to to get it and you definitely got some of the guys at Penske like Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano obviously you got the Gibbs cars at Truex and Kyle Busch pretty good run from uh, who was this see the this was from this past Saturday's race. I mean, Joey Logano had a great race. Uh, Austin Dillon, Chase Elliott. Let's see. Bowman, even though he's not in the playoffs. Oof. Denny Hamlin, 12th. That's uh, pretty bad. Considering he's been, like, second place for, like, half the season. Let's see. Mace Kenseth, Matt Kenseth went 16th. <laughs> Man, he struggled at points, but it'll—I think it'll be the race between uh, Hamlin and uh, Harvick to see who would win the championship in November. And that should wrap up this episode of Geeks and Jocks. Whether whether I'll do a new episode next week or in two weeks, I don't know. Uh, you can find me on Anchor.fm. Podcast can also be found on Google Podcasts, Radio Breaker, not Radio Breaker, uh, Radio Public, excuse me, uh, Breaker, Spotify. Support the show, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your families, anybody. Support the show. And with that, Geeks and Jocks, this is Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe. Stay healthy and protect yourself. Have yourself a good night. Take care, everyone.